You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Thank you. Merry Christmas, everybody. Uh, Micah chapter 5. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origin are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labour bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand with shep- and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in his majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Usually people are only crying at the end of my sermons, so um, got a head start today. Uh, sorry. Uh, great, I'm going to pray. There's an outline of my sermon on the, uh, on the church website, on that welcome card that I've mentioned a couple of times. So if you're the sort of person who finds a kind of logical flow or an illogical flow, I'm not sure what it is, but uh, I'll leave that up to you. Uh, then you can look up the uh, outline there. I'll, I'll pray and then we'll take a look at Micah 5. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the joy it is to meet together to celebrate on this Christmas Eve. Uh, And we do pray, Father, that you would open our hearts, uh, open our minds, open our ears uh, to hear your word, to receive your word, uh, and to to find hope from your word this Christmas. Uh, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, the key idea for today in many ways is hope. Uh, And so I'm wondering, uh, who is it that you turn to when you feel a bit hopeless? Now, perhaps some of you might chafe against that idea of feeling hopeless. You think, oh, that's a bit, you know, I'm a bit too strong to feel hopeless. Uh, but I reckon whether you tend towards optimism or pessimism or everyone thinks they're a realist, uh, I reckon all of us have moments where we feel a bit hopeless. Uh, it's not usually in every area of our life, I don't think. Usually there's at least one or two or maybe more uh, areas of our life where we feel like we're kicking a few goals, you know, we're having a few wins. Uh, But often there's at least some areas of our life where we feel that no matter what we do, we can never have a win. It's the area of life that just leaves you feeling hopeless. I'm not sure what it is for you. Uh, It could be your area of employment or lack of employment. It could be your marriage or the struggles of parenting. It could be pursuing better physical health or better emotional health. It could be trying to master a particular hobby. It could be pursuing a closer relationship with God. I don't know what it is, but it's the area of your life where you feel like no matter what you do, it's always one step forward and two or three steps back. And so it just leaves you feeling hopeless. So who do you turn to when you feel hopeless? Uh, It could be lots of different people, I'm sure lots of different people might spring to your mind, but I want to suggest today that uh, when we feel hopeless, lots of us turn to our leaders to give us hope. You might say, what? But I reckon we saw this during the the kind of era of the pandemic. 
we all, you know, people wanted their leaders uh, to paint a picture of the future that wouldn't be as dark and depressing and discouraging as the reality of the present. They wanted their leaders to give a picture of the future, a vision that was full of potential and possibility rather than just despair. They wanted their leaders to uh, kind of not only have a plan for a better future, uh, but to demonstrate that they had the power to actually bring that better future into reality. And I think this is what we want from our leaders. We want them to give us hope when we feel hopeless. Of course, most of the leaders we turn to for that hope aren't that crash hot. Right? They're all talk, but there's very little walk. They overpromise and underdeliver. And I'm not being too critical of them. I'm a leader myself, and I know that I probably do that myself too. I want to give people hope, but I'm just not able to do it consistently. And that's because none of these leaders are the ideal human leader that all of us long for. But the ideal leader who not only has a plan for a better future, but has the power to bring that better future to pass. Now, it's maybe no surprise to you coming to a Christian event at Christmas that I think that ideal leader is Jesus. Right? That's the good news of Christmas. God promises here in Micah chapter 5 that one day an ideal shepherd king will be born. A leader who has a plan to make a better future for the entire world and who has the power to bring that plan to pass. Uh, but we can look at the Bible to tell us that Jesus is the fulfilment of these promises in Micah chapter 5. If you uh, are a quick Bible flicker or if you, uh, you can flick to Matthew chapter 2 verses 5 and 6. Uh, if you're less quick and know your way around the Bible a little bit, you know, you're, you're a bit slower, uh, that's fine. Write it down. Matthew chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Uh, it's when King Herod is threatened by the birth of Jesus. He thinks, oh, this child who's been born is going to overthrow my rule. Uh, and so he gathers together some Jewish priests and he asks them, where was the Messiah to be born? Where was God's ideal king, his ideal leader to be born? And the Jewish priests say, in Bethlehem, in Judea. And what's their evidence to support this? They quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2. They say to Herod, for it is written by the prophet Micah, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the clans of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Right? Jesus is God's ideal shepherd king who was born to give hope to those who feel hopeless. That's not the only thing he came for, but from Micah chapter 5, I want to say Jesus is God's ideal shepherd king who came to offer hope to those who feel hopeless. And we see that hopelessness in particular in verse 1 of Micah chapter 5. If you take a look there in verse 1, uh, Micah says, Marshal your troops, O city of troops, uh, for a siege is laid against us. Uh, the city of troops there is a kind of poetic way of speaking about Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem was the capital city of the southern kingdom of Israel. Israel was a divided kingdom in this time a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. Uh, Jerusalem was the capital city of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. It was where Micah did most of his ministry. 
Uh, Jerusalem being the capital was the economic, the political, and of course, the military centre of the kingdom of Judah. Uh, So it's from Jerusalem uh, that Judah had to marshal their troops. And Micah says they've got to marshal their troops because a siege will soon be laid against them. Uh, This is a siege that was laid by the Assyrian Empire in 701 BC. This is not just made-up fantasy fairy tale stuff. Uh, This is a siege that actually happened in history. King Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, laid siege to the city of Jerusalem uh, during the reign of King Hezekiah, king of Judah. Uh, You can read about it in 2 Kings, uh, let me just get the verse, 2 Kings chapter 18. Verses 13 and 14. So this is what's recorded there. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. So Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent this message to the king of Assyria. He said, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me and I will pay you whatever you demand of me. The king of Assyria exacted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, Uh, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So maybe you're starting to get a sense of the picture here. The once mighty king of Judah, King Hezekiah, is essentially turned into a whipping boy for the king of Assyria. Forced to pay the king of Assyria whatever he asks for just to get him off his back. This whole situation is incredibly humiliating for King Hezekiah and his people. And we see that humiliation in the end of verse 1, Micah chapter 5, verse 1, where Micah says, they will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. Now, we don't know whether King Hezekiah was literally struck on the cheek. Maybe he was. I don't know. I imagine the Assyrians, you know, were were pretty ruthless. They might have struck him more than on on the cheek. But the point of this verse is less about the physical violence and more about the humiliation that Hezekiah and the people of Judah experienced at the hands of the Assyrians. It was humiliating because Micah's original hearers were familiar with the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah about 30 years before this. Isaiah was speaking about God's ideal king, uh, the king who was to come, uh, the king that King Hezekiah was supposed to be like. And he said that in his justice and righteousness, God's king was supposed to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. So God's king, King Hezekiah, is supposed to be taking up the rod of God's justice and striking down the wicked and evil Assyrians. You know, the global superpower that's challenging God's people. But here it's the reverse, isn't it? It's the Assyrians who are striking God's king with a rod. The whole situation is incredibly humiliating. It's absolutely hopeless for God's king and and his people. The great city of Jerusalem is under siege. The so-called powerful armies of Jerusalem seem completely impotent. The authoritative king of Jerusalem is being forced to beg for mercy. It's a hopeless situation. So what wonderful news. That Jesus is God's ideal shepherd king who comes to give hope to those who feel hopeless. 
We see the beginnings of that hope in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Take a look in verse 2. Here we see that Jesus is the ideal shepherd king who is a true son of David. Hopefully it becomes clearer why that's important. And look, notice right at the, uh, at the moment when everything seems utterly hopeless, in verse 2 we see that God has a plan for something better. Verse 2 starts with the word, but. Uh, now someone uh, funnier than me uh, once said that the Bible is a book uh, that is full of really big buts. Uh, that's a joke for all the kids. Uh, the Bible is a book that's full of big buts. Uh, and this is a really big but right here in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Right? Everything seems hopeless, but God has a plan for something better. Verse 2, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Now, that word Ephrathah is a bit weird. Uh, it just sounds strange, right? But it's probably just another name for Bethlehem. Uh, Bethlehem means house of food, uh, and Ephrathah means fruitfulness. So I think here, right at the start of verse 2, Micah is saying to God's people, even though you're currently living in a time of poverty and misery as you're oppressed by the Assyrians in the land, better times lie ahead. Times of fruitfulness, Ephrathah. Times of food being on the table, Bethlehem, a house of food. This is the hope for a better future. So God says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, uh, though you are small among the clans of Judah, though you are small. As you see, verse 1 is the great city of Jerusalem where troops can be rallied together. Earlier in Micah, we saw that Jerusalem has magnificent buildings. But in comparison to the great city of Jerusalem, Bethlehem is small. It's weak, it's insignificant, it's unimportant. And that's why a bit later on in the service, we're going to sing a carol. It's not called, O Great Town of Bethlehem, it's called, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is small, it's weak and insignificant, and yet God promises to bring out of Bethlehem. He says, out of you, O little town of Bethlehem, will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Uh, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Now, if you're a Jewish person listening to Micah's words here in verse 2, it would have been hard for you to not kind of automatically think about King David. You can read about King David in 1 Samuel chapter 16 or a bunch of different places, but in 1 Samuel chapter 16 we see uh, that even though David uh, was born in the little town of Bethlehem, the weak and insignificant town of Bethlehem, he was God's choice to be ruler over Israel. Even though he was the youngest and scrawniest and least likely of the sons of Jesse, he was God's choice to be ruler over Israel. And Mike is saying, that's what, I mean, who would have thought that a great king like King David could come out of the little town of Bethlehem, yet that's what God did in the past And it's what God's going to do in the future when he brings Jesus, a great and mighty king, out of the little town of Bethlehem. And Micah is, therefore, because of this connection with David, he's wanting to make it really clear that Jesus uh, is a true son of David, a descendant of David, 
which I think is what he's getting at with that strange end to verse 2 where he says uh, the origins of this king, the oranges of this king, no, the origins of this king are of old, of ancient times. Uh, He's looking back to the kind of ancient promises of God way back in the Old Testament. So, for example, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, God promised King David something about his kingdom. 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 and 13 uh, God said to David, when, you, uh, when your days are over uh, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name uh, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But these are the ancient origins of this king who will be one day born in Bethlehem, at least as far back as 2 Samuel chapter 7. God's people have been expecting a son of David, a descendant of David, uh, to come and take up David's throne and establish God's eternal kingdom. Uh, But it goes back even further than that. right in Genesis chapter 49 verse 10, uh, these promises are given to Judah, uh, one of the sons of Isaac. Uh, so they'd say, uh, 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 it said to Judah, the scepter of God's rule will not depart from Judah, uh, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, uh, until uh, the one to whom it belongs will come, and the obedience of the nations will be his. But these are the ancient promises that Micah has in mind in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. God's people were expecting an ideal shepherd king, a king who would be a true son of David, would truly be a descendant of David, a king who would be from the tribe of Judah. And God promises that when this king comes, he won't just have a kingdom for a limited period of time like King Hezekiah or King David, no, he'll have a kingdom that will last forever. And he won't just be a king of Judah or even the whole kingdom of Israel with Judah and the northern kingdom being united together. No, Genesis 49 verse 10 says that the obedience of the nations will be his. Now that's come to pass, hasn't it, with Jesus? People all around the world obey and worship Jesus. The obedience of the nations are his. Jesus is a great and mighty king. And yet he comes out of the weak and insignificant town of Bethlehem. Why is that important? It tells us something about how Jesus is going to establish his kingdom. It tells us that at every point Jesus is going to show his power and significance in ways that seem to us and to the world around us to be weak and insignificant. Jesus wasn't just born in Bethlehem rather than in Jerusalem. He was born in a manger rather than a palace. It doesn't seem like where a king would be born. He wasn't welcomed by the local celebrities and A-listers, but by shepherds and some Babylonian philosophers from the east. Not exactly the top of the invite list if you wanted to launch a global campaign to get masses of people to worship a child. Jesus didn't have a luxury home of his own, uh, but we read the Son of Man didn't have a place to lay his head. He stayed at a friend's place. He slept on the streets. Jesus' followers were notorious sinners and social outcasts, not the respected religious types. 
And towards the end of his life, Jesus was crowned with thorns, not with gold and jewels. He was lifted up on a cross, not lifted up on a throne. But at every point of Jesus' life, he shows the significance and power of God's kingdom in ways that seem to be weak and insignificant. And I think that should be encouraging for people like us because it tells us that Jesus' kingdom isn't for people who think that they're big and important and powerful. It's for people who look inside themselves and are often conscious of weakness and frailty and insignificance. Those are the kind of people that the ideal shepherd king who was born in Bethlehem came to save. Jesus is God's ideal shepherd king, a true son of David. Uh, He's God's ideal shepherd king uh, who came to offer uh, restoration to his people. Uh, If you look there in verse 3, Micah says, Therefore Israel will be abandoned. Oh, which all feels a bit depressing after verse 2, doesn't it? Uh, you, oh, you give us hope and then you just say we're going to be abandoned. Uh, but I think what Mike is saying is even though God's long-term plan uh, is to send this ideal king who will restore God's people, uh, his shorter-term plan is that Israel will be abandoned. Like that is a part of God's plan. And not because he wants it but because his people repeatedly turned away from him. And that's actually what happened in history. Again, you can read it. After a brief period of recovering under Hezekiah, uh, the people and kings of Judah all turned away from God. And finally, in 587 BC, God said, fine, have it your way. He abandoned his people, as it were. The Babylonians conquered them and took them off into exile. And even though many of the exiles eventually returned to the land, uh, the people of Israel did not return to the glory days of King David, uh, where they were gathered under a seemingly ideal king and experienced blessing and prosperity as God's people. Uh, But here God's saying, one day that will happen. One day a king will come, a truly ideal king, and he will restore God's people. When will that happen? Well, notice the next line of verse 3. It will happen when she who is in labour bears a son. Again, Micah's kind of riffing off one of his contemporaries in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, 30 years before this, Isaiah predicted a pretty well-known verse. He predicted that one day a virgin would be with child and she would give birth to a son who would be called Emmanuel, God with us. So Mike is saying that that child is Jesus, the ideal king who comes to restore God's people. He comes to restore. You you see, uh, the rest of his brothers will return to join the Israelites. All of God's people who'd been conquered and deported over the previous kind of hundreds of years by the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greeks and the Romans, all of God's people would have an opportunity to come back to this ideal king and be united under him as their king, enjoying the blessing and restoration that comes from that. And take a look at verse 4. It assures us uh, that if we surrender to Jesus, God's ideal king, 
He'll care for us like a shepherd. That's why I've been saying ideal shepherd king. A king who, Micah says, has divine power and authority. Notice verse 3. Uh, David says, uh, David says, Micah says, once he stands, once he's installed as God's king, he will shepherd his flock. Again, there's a connection to David. You know, David was called away from tending his father's sheep to become the shepherd king of Israel. And so Jesus will be sent away from his father to become the shepherd king of God's people. But unlike the long list of Israel's kings before him who failed because of their own weakness and frailty and sin, Jesus is God's king will never fail. Why is that? Well, notice what Micah says, because he will have unique power and authority. He will conduct his kingship in the strength and power of the Lord. And notice the end of verse 4. Because Jesus is uniquely empowered by God in this way, his people will always be secure. They will live securely. Jesus' greatness won't be just limited to the land of Israel where it can be challenged by the next global superpower, the Assyrians, the Babylonians and so on. No, no, no. Jesus' greatness... Uh, will extend to the ends of the earth. That's the end of verse 4, isn't it? The obedience of the nations will be his. It goes all the way back to Genesis 49, verse 10. Now, you might say, well, that seems like an awful lot of power to entrust in the hands of one individual. Like maybe you're a bit of a student of history. Uh, You may have learnt that kind of good and benevolent dictators aren't that common. Like centralising lots of power in the hands of one person, historically, hasn't worked that well. It hasn't always brought blessing and prosperity to those under their rule. And that's a fair observation. But Jesus is different. Jesus is the ideal shepherd king. He's the good shepherd king. He's the one who uses the power entrusted to him not to serve himself, but to serve others. He uses this power entrusted to him not to lord it over others, but to lay down his life for others. He is God's good shepherd king. Jesus understood this about himself. Uh, in, In the Gospels, in John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus said to his disciples, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Now, I reckon we sometimes read this and we might think, why is it good? Why is it loving for Jesus, God's good shepherd king, to lay down his life for people? We're here in this building with the the tram line, just on St George's Road running out there. I guess uh, imagine for a moment uh, that uh, Gabby and I are walking along the path uh, next to... Gabby's my wife, if you don't know. Uh, We're walking along the path next to the tram and I say to Gabby, Gabby, I just, I need you to know just how much I love you. So I'm going to jump in front of this tram. Knocked over. All right? uh, now that is a, a sacrificial act, but it's not really good or loving, is it? It's just weird. But if it's the case that Gabby stumbles in front of the tram and I, in a great heroic feat, push her out of the way and die myself in the process, 
Right? That is an act that is good and loving and noble. And so why is Jesus a good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep? Why is it good for Jesus to do that? It's because of the root cause of our hopelessness. Some of the hopelessness we experience in life is because of people and things out there in the world. There is a sense in which the world is all broken and messed up and we experience some hopelessness because of other people. We're victims of other people and other things and other circumstances. But that's not all our hopelessness. Much of our hopelessness comes from stuff going on in our own hearts, from our own pride and stubbornness, in particular from our refusal to give our lives to God and to acknowledge that actually we're not doing that good a job of being in control of our lives and maybe Jesus, God's ideal king, would do a better job. But we struggle with that and it leads us to hopelessness because God made us to be in relationship with him, not to be rejecting him. And of course the penalty, the consequence of rejecting God, the source of all life, as we're determined to rule our own lives, is death. As someone once said, we live in, the, uh, in a cut flower world. You know, flowers that are cut, they have the appearance of being alive, but they're dying. Well, that's what we're like in our sin. We've cut ourselves off from God, the source of all life. The consequence of that, the penalty for that, is death. Uh, But the wonderful news of Christmas is that Jesus took on flesh in becoming a little baby in a manger so that one day he could give his flesh for us. He could lay down his life for us. That is a good and loving and noble act, an act that is worthy of our worship because it's not just random, meaningless acts of sacrifice like me jumping in front of a tram, but it's a great act to rescue someone from certain death. Jesus is God's ideal shepherd king, God's good shepherd king, the king who comes to lay down his life for us, the king who comes at Christmas to offer hope to those who feel hopeless. May that be an encouragement to you this Christmas. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together this afternoon to celebrate Christmas together and particularly to fix our eyes on the meaning and significance of the birth of Jesus, your Son. We praise you uh, that he is a great and mighty king who established an eternal kingdom over all nations, and yet he came out of the little town of Bethlehem, assuring us that his kingdom has a place for people like us, who so often are conscious of our own weakness and smallness and frailty. Uh, We pray in his name. Amen.